0: I want to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 14. For those of you that weren't here last week or the Saturday seminar, we had a wonderful time with Randy Newman, just giving us more encouragement as to how to engage people with the gospel, talking to people about faith in the Lord. And I had an opportunity to experience, remember we was talking about some people just aren't even in the game yet as far as what it means to uh, become a Christian. So I... I was in a grocery store this week, and I met a girl, and her name was Heaven. I said, oh, Heaven, that's a cool name. I said, "Um, do you believe in Heaven? She goes, I don't know. And I said, wow, Heaven? I said, wouldn't it be cool to end up in Heaven and be named Heaven? So she truly wasn't ready to to obviously go deeper, but at least at that point I could say to her, hey, Heaven, I'm going to encourage you to at least read the New Testament. See what Jesus had to say about Heaven and see if that's something that you might be interested in. So... It was encouraging, and we have resources. We have a bookstore in the back. We don't make any money off of it, but if you're interested, some of Randy Newman's books. We also have some books about Christmas and um, things for outreach and training your children and so forth. So be f- be sure to take advantage of our bookstore back there. Also, I don't think Pastor John, is he still here? I don't think so, but it's his birthday today, so if you do see Pastor John... Be sure to wish him a happy birthday. We sang happy birthday to him in the first service, and that's probably why he went screaming out the door as fast as he could after that announcement. really want to encourage you to consider that gateway class, too. We've had probably 40 or 50 people go through that. This isn't just for theologians. This is a, This is a way to really grow, a way to go, I want to know what I believe. The Bible says, leaving the elementary basic things about the word, press on to maturity. And this is a chance to read a theology book. It's not for rocket scientists. It's for... Christians to really be grounded in the Bible, so I encourage you to consider that. This morning, we're in Mark chapter 14, and we're going to learn a very valuable lesson for our own lives. Mike Tyson once made a very famous statement when he was at the pinnacle of his boxing career. He said, everyone has a good game plan until you get punched in the mouth. And what we're going to find in in the life of Jesus is that as he interacts with the disciples, They were very eager and they were very willing to do whatever he asked them. What they didn't realize is that they underestimated their weakness as soon as they got punched in the mouth. And so that's something that we can learn from. But let me remind you where we are in the book. It's really been encouraging to me to find that a number of people that are coming are not Christians. You're listening to the Gospel of Mark and you're thinking about making a decision. I talked to two people this morning after the service. They said, not sure yet, but, but we're, we're considering what it means to be a Christian. So we said that Mark is clarifying who Jesus is. He's writing his book. The Holy Spirit led him to show us Jesus is the divine son of God who became a man, who came to earth to die for our sins, arise rise again, and then to invite people to come and follow him, to be forgiven followers. And so the second part is committing to the journey. And so once they identified who Christ was, we're in the latter part of the book where he's teaching us what does it mean if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and I commit to being a follower, what does that look like? So we've illustrated it with a road. Now Mark calls it being on the way, being on the way. And so somehow, like Alice in Wonderland, you know, you have to jump into the game here. And what, that, what, what we mean by that is you have to ask yourself, have I put my personal trust in Jesus Christ? Am I willing to follow him? Have I received his free and full forgiveness? You don't have to remember when you did it. You just have to know that you did it. If you're not sure about that, if you're like, I don't even know if I'm a Christian, that's what we want to help you with. We want to help you to understand that you can know you're a Christian. You can know you're forgiven. You can know you have eternal life. And that's what God wants for you. He doesn't want you to be wandering around worrying. So Jesus would use illustrations. He says, one time he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but through me. And so we see a cross to indicate that if you want to get to heaven, you have to go through Jesus. Now, we recognize that today that's not popular. At best, someone might say, well, that's good if it works for you. At worst, they're going to say, how dare you be so narrow-minded and so bigoted that you would say Jesus is the only way. And I back off and I go, wait a minute, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't say it. Jesus said, no one comes to God but through me. So, if you don't believe the words of Jesus, then don't take it personal against those who do. So Jesus, when he was on earth, people go, oh, I love that that thing where he said, do unto others. I go, you know, that was in the Sermon on the Mount. You know what he said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount? He said, strive to enter the narrow way. He said, broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many find it. Narrow is the way that leads to life. In other words, your greatest concern in your soul should be Am I in? Am am I forgiven? Am I on the way? But what I think you'll find is that once you commit to the way, you make a decision to become a Christian, then you want to stay on that path. And so what we see here is the disciples, this is late in the game, this is three and a half years after being with Jesus, had to have some important lessons in underestimating their own eagerness, underestimating their own weakness, because sometimes while we pledge allegiance to our Savior, we forget that eagerness is no substitute for watchfulness. So we left off, Pastor John uh, shared a couple weeks ago, Jesus had just instituted the new covenant with the Lord's Supper. Verse 26 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now we, we learn from biblical literature at that time that the Jews, after they held the Passover meal, they would sing from the Psalm. In fact, that was their songbook, the Psalms. Some churches, that's all they sing is psalms. I think that's limited. The Bible says we can sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But I like singing psalms. We just sang a couple psalms. Probably here Jesus sang what we'll call the Hillel Psalm, Psalm 115 to Psalm 118. So I want to recommend a really neat book if you haven't heard of this. Tim Keller has a little tiny book called The Songs of Jesus. It's kind of like, hey, you want to see Jesus' songbook? And, and it's basically a devotional book on the Psalms. So each day you just read a psalm, and then he has a few comments. But to think that these were the, the songs that Jesus sang. And so they sing this hymn. Now, don't forget this. They're still a little agitated because while they were having communion, he goes, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Wait, what? Us 12, man, we're like this. What do you mean one of us will betray you? So now Jesus, as they leave Jerusalem, drops another bomb. Look at verse 27. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. The, the word there is you will all stumble. You will be caused to stumble. So you're like, wait a minute. First you tell me one of us is going to betray you. And now you tell us all of us are going to stumble. What what do you mean by that? Well, he says, remember that the Old Testament predicted this. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So this is like absolutely not even on their radar. Three times he has already told them, I'm going to be beaten, crucified. I'm going to die. And they're like, no. Hey, by the way, can we be first in the kingdom? Now he introduces to them, like, guys, every single one of you are going to bail on me. But notice also that he understands that his death is ordained by God. He quotes Zechariah 13, I will strike down the shepherd. Like, that's, think about God going, I'm going to strike down my son. There are verses in the Bible that are staggering. It says, it pleased the Lord to crush him. You see, God and Jesus had this understanding that the only way that we could avoid hell was if God were to punish Christ in our place. And So all along, Jesus knew his purpose. I came to give my life a ransom. But now he introduces to the disciples that they're all going to bail on him. But immediately after telling that, he gives them encouragement. But after I've been raised, verse 28, I will go before you to Galilee. I assure you, they had no idea what he was talking about here but they remembered it later. It's kind of cool when you think about it. Beginning of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus comes into Galilee, and he recruits them. And they leave everything, and now they've been following him around for three and a half years. Now at the end, he goes, I'm getting ready to get killed, and you're going to fall away from me, but don't worry. I'll meet you back in Galilee, and we'll get this worked out. Just keep that in the back of your mind, that the Lord is so merciful in our weakness. Now Peter says to him, Jesus Even though others will fall away, I won't. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, you yourself this very night before cock crows twice shall three times deny me. But Peter kept insistently, like he was adamant, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, that is not true. I will not deny you. And we're all like, Peter, shut up, stop talking. right? But don't miss the next phrase, because only Mark tells us the next phrase. And they were all saying the same thing. So let's not put this whole thing on Peter, like, oh, Peter, loser, you coward. They all were saying that. Jesus, we got your back, man. We've been with you for three and a half years. We're good, baby. We got you. We're going down together. And Jesus is like, please stop talking. So what he's teaching us here, and one of the things that we need to, to, to recognize is that Jesus both knows of our impending failures. He will keep us and strengthen us. But we have to take note here that eagerness is no substitute for our weakness. And so he's going to introduce them to this. Look at verse 32. They came to a place named Gethsemane. Now, between where Jerusalem was on Mount Moriah, and another mountain to the east called the Mount of Olives, there's a, there's a ravine. So you just walk down. I just did that a few weeks ago. It was so wonderful to, to actually walk down from Jerusalem, walk down from the Mount of Olives to this, to this olive grove called Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still there. These ancient olive trees there. And you're looking around, you're thinking, this is where this all took place. And this event in the life of Jesus is something that we need to rehearse. Like you don't just go, oh, I already heard that story. When you hear your favorite song on the radio, you don't turn it off and go, oh, I already already heard that song. So as we're thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane, early on in the history of Christianity, this was an important event that Christians thought about. We're we're thinking about Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, Jesus learned obedience through suffering with loud crying and tears. This was a very emotional night for Jesus, and it causes us to love him and, and learn from him. So he comes to Gethsemane, he says to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. Those are strong words. The word distressed is normally translated in this book, amazed. Like, what could amaze Jesus? What could so deeply trouble him that he says in verse 34, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. I want you to, to, to just think about that. We sometimes speak of a dark cloud. Those of you who have experienced deep, serious clinical depression can at least identify a little bit of the painful feeling of what it's like when you're overwhelmed with this darkness of the soul. Ed Welch has a book called Depression, That Stubborn Darkness, in which, in which he literally says that almost every great christian in history who went through deep depression used the word hell to describe it so all of a sudden jesus is just hours from going to the cross and he's suddenly overwhelmed with the weight of anticipation of what's about to happen to him to the point where he says this could kill me my sorrow is so strong right now i could die from this and on the one hand you go wait a minute jesus I've read a little bit of of, um, history of the Greeks. I mean, Socrates, he he didn't say that. He he took the the, the hemlock. You know, there's lots of Stoics who have just resigned themselves to face death. Why are you so uh, down there? I mean, isn't this what you came for? But I want you to understand that Jesus was not overwhelmed with sorrow because he was going to die. I mean, think about what's about to happen in six hours one Friday. The Bible teaches that the the just penalty for just one person's sin is to spend eternity in a place called the lake of fire where the smoke of men's torment rises up day and night forever away from the presence of the Lord. So a permanent abandonment in a place of suffering forever is the just payment for rebellion against God. And Jesus is about to endure not just one person's Just payment but all I don't know how in the providence of God because Jesus is God God could squeeze in all of that wrath into six hours but that's what happened on the cross Jesus wasn't just making a token payment well you know I'll give it my best shot like God is just this is the debt it has to be fully paid and so as Jesus anticipates the entire sin of the world about to come on his shoulders and about to be abandoned by God and then to experience the the crushing of God's wrath pouring down over his soul until he finally goes, it's finished. No wonder he felt as though he could die. And so he tells his disciples, remain here and keep watch. Now, it wasn't but a chapter before that where he kept telling them, hey guys, stay alert, stay alert, keep watching, keep watching. So I don't know that they understood exactly what he was asking them to do, Maybe they were like, keep watch like a sentry, like like don't let anybody come upon us unaware. But then let's look at his prayer. It says in verse 35, he went a little beyond them and he fell to the ground. Jesus didn't just dust off his his robe and pull up his robe a little bit and like to put his knees down. He just collapsed. He collapsed in sorrow. He collapsed in agony. He collapsed in tears. The Bible says in Luke, his sweat became, as it were, drops of blood. And and doctors say that those little corpuscles can actually break and mix with your sweat. I mean, this was an agonizing experience. And so Jesus looks up to heaven, and and only twice in the Bible does he say this, Abba. He calls God Abba, which is the Aramaic term for for daddy. It's, it's, It's a precious term of endearment. It's not something that Jews did regularly. So, so, so in his agony, he cries out, Abba, Daddy, Father. And I saw this once, because in the New Testament, the only time that it's used of us, it's used with the word crying. The God sent his spirit into our heart, Galatians 4, crying, Abba, Father. My son once had a bad dream when he was a little boy, and he bolted awake, and he goes, Daddy! And it just kind of reminded me, like, he didn't sit there and reflect, hmm, That was a terrifying experience. Who would be the most likely person who can bring me some sense of solace, comfort, and protection? It just came out. Daddy. And so Jesus instinctively, as he anticipates this horror, dad, father. And then look what he asks. He says, father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Even though though he had just told them earlier in the book, I'm going to drink the cup of God's wrath. Can you drink it? And they're all going, yeah, we can drink it now when he's about to drink it, he goes, Lord, please, please, let, let it pass. And so we're reminded of the humanity of Jesus. We're reminded about his weakness and his sense of going, I don't want to do this. If it's possible, let this cup pass. Yet, not what I will, but what your will is. Let your will be done, Father. What a great model for prayer. Those of you who have been following our prayer chain know that Cindy Zerung had a terrible terrible massive heart attack this week and i sat with them as the doctor said you know it's real pretty likely she's not going to live and as we, as we cried out to the lord and many many people were praying it looks like she's turned the corner she's actually coming home already and so we praise god right but what if she didn't See, that's the difficulty can, can we cry out to god in such a way that we say lord please 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 but I resign myself that your will is the most important thing. So what a great example for us. He got ready for Golgotha at Gethsemane. And I think we need to remember that. Some of us are going to face kind of a Golgotha-like moment, but he got ready for it in Gethsemane. And that's important. So, He gets up, verse 37, he comes and finds them sleeping. And he says to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you just keep watch with me for one hour? Like, I wonder how many of you have even thought about praying for an hour. Like, an hour? Yeah, I think conglomerate over the year, I'm pretty sure I I logged an hour in the book. Right? Many of you say, I fall asleep in two minutes. Right? Well, novel thought. Maybe you ought to try praying in a different posture, right? Instead of on your sleep number bed, puffed up with the devil going, you're getting sleepy. Like this, this prayer is something that needs discipline and urgency. So look at verse 38. He says, so Peter, here's what you need to do. You need to keep watching and praying. This isn't a one-time thing. Keep watching and praying that you might not come into temptation, so the first thing that's important that I have to understand about this whole idea of facing difficult circumstances is, I need to be praying about this regularly. It's too late. It's too late when the bomb goes off to start going, oh, I better start praying. Too late in the moment of temptation to go, oh, I probably should pray about this. We need to develop a habit of watching and praying. For some of you, this isn't even in your prayer par- paradigm like, well, I pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this food, and um, thanks for this day. Please watch over Mommy and Daddy and Billy and Buffy and Becky. But, but this idea of, of a regular watchful praying for a very specific thing. He says, watch and pray that you may not come into temptation. This is not far from what he taught in the Lord's Prayer, right? In the Lord's Prayer. Give us our daily bread, so that tells you it's not once in a while. But then he says, and let us not enter into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or it could be translated from the evil one, So what we're learning here is that the Christian experience has to be one that's postured, among other things, with prayer and watchfulness, right? So hopefully this will grow us deeper in our Christian experience to go, I don't know how I'm going to respond to difficult circumstances. So for example, we sing a song that says, Blessed be your name when the sun shining down on me. When the world's all that it should be, blessed be your name. But then, but then it talks about when things go bad. And then it says this. It says, blessed be your name. And it says, you give and take away, you give and take away. And I'm going, do you understand what that verse is? That's when Job's kids died. And then it goes, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. These weak lips don't sing that. You know why? Because I don't know if I got a phone call, hey, your kids are all dead, that my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. I just tweak it a little bit. I sing, you give and take away, you give and take away. I pray my heart will say, blessed be your name. I'm learning to have a posture of dependence and recognizing our weakness. Because what Jesus is telling us is the spirit is willing. In other words, if you're a Christian, God has given us a desire to do what's right. God works in us to, I want to do what's right, don't you? I don't sit here going, man, I can't wait to do wickedness, right? But what, what he means by this when he says the flesh is weak is that there's something still inside of us as Christians that we must not underestimate. Let's make sure we understand what the flesh is in the Bible. So those of you who are new to studying the Bible... The Bible describes unbelievers as being in the flesh. And what that means is that their heart, their mind, and their disposition is in opposition to God. It's offline with God, okay? Now, the way that this is manifested does not mean they're all Adolf Hitlers, axe murderers, cursing God. You're just born disconnected from God, I was watching funniest videos last night with my grandkids, and, and while it was funny, it was, it was just a, a beautiful example of this. They were showing little children, videoing them, telling lies about, oh, no, uh, I didn't, one kid's going, I didn't mess my pants, a bird climbed in my pants and, and, and doo-dooed in my pants, and it's just kind of like, really? So the Bible says that we're born in the flesh, and the Bible says the mind of the flesh is hostile to God, it's unwilling and unable to submit to God. But then you become a Christian, and the Bible says the flesh has been crucified. We're no longer in the flesh, but in the spirit. But what that doesn't mean is that the flesh is gone. It means that the flesh no longer has the dominant authority in your life. But this is going to explain something that some of you may be experiencing, but you didn't understand what's going on. I became a Christian. Why do I still feel this way? Because the Bible says the flesh lusts against the spirit. There's still something inside of us, a disposition that wants to disobey God, a Burger King disposition that says, I'm not really concerned about God's way, I just want to have it my way, okay? Like you might think, well, Pastor Tom probably thinks about Sunday school, and I'm like, no, sometimes I think about sex, and I'm not thinking what I should be thinking, right? But I don't have to act on that, I don't have to give in to that, but it's important for us to understand that we have great weakness in our flesh, and that we ought never think that wow, I would never do that, or how did, I can't believe those people do that, and even as we approach others in sin, the Bible says, we should restore them gently, looking to ourselves, lest you be tempted, so Jesus is just reminding us, hey, brothers and sisters, my kids, don't overestimate your, 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 your willingness, it's not a substitute, right, so learn to pray, and so he went away and prayed again, and he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they didn't know what to answer him, Came a third time, he said, are you still sleeping? It's enough, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Let's let's get up, get up. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now don't miss here that Jesus is in total control. Even in his agony, he's in complete control of all of the circumstances. Verse 43, immediately while he's still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, came up, accompanied by a multitude with swords, clubs from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Way back in chapter Mark or Chapter 2 of Mark, it says they were looking for a way to kill him. Okay? It wasn't that he didn't lack people that wanted to kill him. They were just looking for a way to get away with it. And this was not a good time to do that because it's the Passover. And at the Passover, there's 2 million Jews from all over the world flocked to Jerusalem, and a lot of those people like Jesus. So if they were to just come up and grab him in the temple one day and say, you're under arrest, we're going to kill you, There would have been a riot. So they're like, we got to get this guy away from the crowds. And Judas goes, I know. I know a secret spot where we can get him. Take him down, slip away, get this done. And so Judas made arrangements. He says, let's go get him in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where he hangs out. I've seen seen his tent there, right? But don't, don't forget here that when he's getting arrested, we're not talking about two or three thugs like Mr. T going, hey, The Bible says in the Gospel of John there was a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's 600 soldiers. That's more people than in this room. And that's just the the Roman soldiers. Okay? So imagine, they're in this dark night, maybe a starry night, when suddenly you see a trail of torches, hundreds of feet, clubs and swords, clamoring soldiers. And suddenly these guys are waking up, getting the sand out of their eyes, and they're going, what's going on? Right? But Jesus is like, It's here. So Judas comes up to him, according to verse 44. He had given them a signal saying, whomever I kiss, he is the one who sees him. Lead him away under guard. So just in case you're confused about which one of these guys it is, I don't know who's going to be with him. I'll give you a signal. And after coming up, he immediately went up to him saying, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. And, 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 you know, there's an irony to this. It's not like Jesus is going, get off, get off. The Bible says he loved me and he gave himself up for me. Songwriter said they bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed and they led him through the streets in shame. They mocked and spat upon him so pure and free from, son, from sin. And they said, crucify him, he's to blame. But he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And so I, I see the love of Jesus for you and me, agonizing in the garden, willing to still drink the cup, getting strength from God. And then out of his love for us, out of the joy set before him, he freely delivers himself up. Not because he's like, dang, they got me. Verse forty-seven says, "But a certain one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear." We learn from the other Gospels that that's Peter. And one of the reasons why it's fun to learn how to look words up in Greek—you don't have to be a, a, a scholar. There's programs for this is there's different words for sword. There's a little close combat dagger. That's what's used in Ephesians six when it says the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. But there's also a big sword, like like almost like a, a club. And so. You didn't use that kind of sword to stab someone. You you, you brought that sucker down to crush them or to, or, or to just, you know, split them in half. And so Peter takes up this sword and he and he's ready to go. Now, think about this. We all think of Peter, that, that sorry, coward, deny Jesus. Well, it kind of shows you sort of the, the bipolarness of our flesh because I don't think Peter expected that he was going to beat 600 soldiers. He's just keeping his word, I got your back, Jesus, I'll go down with you, right, but within another hour or so, he totally denies him, but, so, so he takes that sword, he cuts off Malchus's ear, while I was over in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish guide, he goes, you, you know, in his accent, he goes, you remember Jesus picked up his ear and, and glued it on, and, I'm, and you know, everybody's like, no, he didn't glue it on, and I said, you know what Jesus said to him, some of you have heard this, I made this up, but pray for me. He said, hey, man, you dropped your earbud. All right, that's it. And if that's all you remember, I'm not teaching anymore. So here's the thing. Jesus heals him, and Jesus answers and said to him, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple. You didn't seize me then. But again, look at his control. He goes, you know why he did this? This only happened so that the Scripture might be fulfilled. It says, and they all left him and fled. They all promised they wouldn't do this, and they all just bailed. And then we have the first streaker in history. A certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him, but he left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. I'm glad this story stops there because that would have been awkward. I don't know where he went, how he got clothes. But but there's sort of a foreboding sense of like, see, you're going to strike me down, and you're going to be scattered. No, we won't. Come pray with me for a while. Oh, Father, <clears throat> you guys can't pray. Never mind, get up. Whew, they're gone. So I go, what do I do with that? Well, as a Christian, these are the type of things where you go, these stories are not just stories that we go, oh yeah, I already heard that. But, but Christians meditate on the word they cause us to, to go, okay, what is, what is God teaching me? All scripture is, is profitable. And so if you're leading Bible studies on this, before you go, okay, well, that's the story for today. Now everybody, you know, you're teaching children. Now everybody draw a picture of a little sword and we'll put an ear back on Mr. Potato Head. No, let's stop and think, all right, what is, what is profitable from this passage for teaching reproach or teaching reproof and training and educating me in righteousness and ultimately pointing me toward Christ? So let me give you some things to think about as we close. Number one... It's important to be reminded, don't underestimate the flesh's weakness. Okay? Mark that down, that we are all less capable than we think we are when it comes to trusting and obeying God. Everybody has a good plan until we get punched in the mouth. So, so what does that look like? Well, first of all, 1 Corinthians 10 says, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. Now you might say, Well, how do I know whether I'm underestimating my flesh's weakness? I'll tell you one way, is if you aren't regularly praying that God will protect you from temptation and keep you from evil, then you are underestimating the flesh's weakness. You tell me, I'll do this all the time, how many of you believe we need prayer? How many, we need to cry out to God, we need spiritual armor. Everybody's like, yes, amen. I go, how often do you do it? Hmm, not so much. Then you don't really believe that. Nobody, including me, thinks we're going to be the next victim to sin. Eagerness is not a substitute for watchfulness. So so I have to go, all right, well, what should I start doing differently? Well, here's what I want to suggest. We need to make it a habit to pray for ourselves and others not to fall away and stumble. How often do you actually ask God? I've, I've been implementing this for some time in my life only because I feel like God's teaching me this because it it jumps out in scripture. We often sin not because we're you know egregiously wicked, we're just careless and lazy. Falling away and falling into sin is preceded by failure to pray. so I want you to think about your prayer life first of all I, I Hands down, Phil, that's the weakest part of our church, okay, prayer. And I say that. I don't say that to be mean. I think when I read the book of Revelation, Jesus came to each church, and he's like, hey, this you're doing well, this you need to work on, right? Corporate prayer, we hold a prayer meeting. We can get a handful of people out. We have 60-some small groups that meet. But how much time do those groups spend in prayer, literal prayer? intercessory pleading with god personally if i did a survey and said put down and just honestly tell me about your prayer life i'm not sure that we would and it's not about how long did you spend so so i say that to exhort and encourage all of us to say hey maybe this is an area that we need to work on as a church we want to see god's blessing we want to succeed we want god to keep us so we need to make it a habit to pray that our loved ones do not stumble Somebody once said it this way, we don't plan on sinning, but we often fail to hold the fort. So I ask God, I say, Lord, don't let any of my kids fall away from you. Keep them, Lord, clinging to you. Let me not wander into temptation. Lord, deliver me from the evil one. I try to pray this every day. Lord, I take up the strength and armor, the helmet of the insurers of my salvation, the sword, the shield, the breastplate, the girdle. My feet are shot. I want to be ready. Pray this for me, if not for yourself. Let's pray. Watch and pray for one another. This is where the battle's won. It's won on our knees before we face these things. So just ask yourself, as a family, is that part of our prayer for one another? Lord, keep me, keep my kids. Anybody here, and I could tell you there's a lot of them who said one of my kids is teetering or has already left the faith. You know how painful that is. Watch and pray, watch and pray, watch and pray. So, number one, Don't overestimate it. Number two, pray regularly. Number three, let's learn from Jesus what to do when we are overwhelmed. We've got to learn to take it to our knees before we can take up our cross. When Jesus was besieged with, you know, we've all had that. Like, you know, some of you are doing fine today, right? But some of you are not doing fine. And actually, there's sort of cycles in life. James chapter 5 says, if anyone's cheerful, let him sing praises. Some of you, are really doing well. Some of you are really suffering. And the Bible says, if anyone's suffering, let him pray. The problem is, we don't even feel safe to do that. We're all doing well. How are you? Fine, fine. You might be falling apart on the inside. You don't have to be fine all the time. So what did Jesus do? At a time when he felt most excluded from God's presence, he was probably closest to God, even though he didn't feel that way. He didn't run from God and get bitter. He fell on his knees and got better. He got strength from God. And so this is what the Bible says. Our Savior is not one who can't sympathize with us. He was in all points tempted as we are. So here's what we're told to do. Therefore, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive grace to to help you in your time of need. So you're like, well, what does that look like? You pray until you pray. You wrestle with God. You get on your knees and you cry out. And even if words don't come out, you trust that the spirit of God is agonizing in prayer through you. But you keep persistent in pleading with God to help you not to give up, not to be discouraged, not to to cave. So, Jesus is our great model. The songwriter said, oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So remember Christ, if you're struggling, you know, everybody's doing fine. Then you get punched in the mouth. You hear cancer or the spouse that says, I want out or the kid that says, I don't know if I believe this or the boss that says you're fired or the or or, or the politics that go, I don't know what's going on. Or the global warming that says, we're all out of here in 12 years. There's a lot of things that could freak us out, right? But Jesus is saying, look, learn to bring it to me in prayer. But the last thing I want you to leave on a very encouraging note. Let's think about Jesus in all this. There's a number of things to be encouraged by. Number one, he's in control, right? Jesus sits in the heavens. He upholds all things by the word of his power. You are in good hands with Jesus' state, right? You got a friend in Jesus, and he's in control. None of this stuff that's coming into your life is going, oh, I didn't see that one coming. That one got by the goalie. Everything's in his perfect control. And remember that he shed his blood as a ransom for our failures. Let's just, it's okay. We're failures. If we weren't failures, he wouldn't have died for us. So the goal here is not like, you better be perfect. The goal here is to learn quickly to run to the cross and say, Jesus, forgive me for my failure. Help me to learn something from it. And then a third thing that encourages me about Jesus is to see his kindness to keep his own. If God called you to Christ, he's going to keep you to the end. I am so glad about that. I don't believe for a minute that Christianity is a a relay race. Jesus died for your past and you finish it. It's a wheelbarrow race. The Bible says, he that began a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. Take courage, no matter how bad you feel about your failures. If you're a child of God, Jesus loves you, and he's going to keep you to the end. He said to Peter that very night in the Gospel of Luke, Satan asked permission to sift you like wheat. He's going to beat you every which way but up. You are going to feel sad, mad, glad, and had. He's going to hit you with a red cross, a right cross. You're going to need the red cross, but you know what? He said, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith will not fail. Take courage, right? Jesus loves you, and he's praying for you, and you're not going to Permanently abandon him. And regardless of where you are in your walk today, Jesus wants to restore you, change you, use you to advance the gospel and to make disciples. So the only question I have for you is, are you on the way yet? Have you made a decision to follow Christ? Father, if there's someone here who you're speaking to their heart, And it's their time to publicly say, I have decided to follow Jesus. May they come freely and gladly. May they come with joy, knowing that Jesus says, anyone who comes to me, I won't cast out. Thank you for his grace that's greater than our sin. In Jesus' name, amen.